When you think about the Great Resignation, what do you imagine? Do you picture mid to upper level executives switching jobs? What about minimum wage earners? Do you think about them? What about the anti-work movement? How can that affect your resilience? Hello everyone and welcome as the Resilience Think Tank presents the Resilient Journey podcast. Welcome to episode 42. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and this week I'm going to speak about the anti-work movement and how staffing shortages are affecting the service industry, how minimum wage jobs are likely to affect your supply chain, why staffing shortages matter, and I'll give you a couple of things you can be looking out for within your own organization. If you're curious about anti-work and you want to learn more, stick around. But first, here's a brief word from Ashley at the Resilience Think Tank. Welcome to the Resilience Think Tank. I'm Ashley Guzman, and along with my co-founders, we created the Resilience Think Tank in 2021, dedicated to providing independent guidance and research to the risk and resilience industry. As founders, we're based in Canada, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and have a combined experience of over 87 years of helping organizations to become resilient. We are committed to ensuring diverse voices are included in making communities and organizations more resilient. I hope you'll join us. Today, I want to talk about the anti-work movement and how it could be affecting your organization's supply chain. But first, before we get too far into the supply chain issue, let's talk a little bit about what anti-work is all about. So at the time of this recording, there is a subreddit called anti-work, and it has just under 2 million followers. And basically what it does is it calls for unemployment for all, not just the rich. That's their tagline. And it's a subreddit for those who want to end work or who are curious about ending work want to get the most out of a work-free life, or just want more information on anti-work ideas. And what they do is they post examples of bad work environments, bad bosses, poor pay, and crummy work conditions, and then they use these examples as reasons to validate the idea that we shouldn't be working. So I thought before we got too far into this, I would share with you a couple of um, the uh, truly terrible work environment posts uh, that are on this subreddit. And I'm not speaking at all as to whether these are true or not. Uh, I'm just simply reporting some of the things that I see uh, on this post. So one person says, and there's like 9,300 upvotes on this one. A shout out to the worst place I ever worked, minimum wage, of course. And it's a new office rule in a memo that was apparently posted somewhere, maybe in a break room, I don't know. And the note says, for every minute that you're late for work, you'll be required to work for 10 minutes after 6 p.m. For example, if you arrive at 10.02, you will have to stay an extra 20 minutes until 6.20. And it says, thanks. (laughs) Then there's one other person who wrote, uh, here's an idea. If you want me to give a fuck about your company's performance, you'll have to pay me like you give a fuck about my performance. Don't expect me to come into your workplace and make things better for you if you're not going to try to make things better for me. Call it selfish or whatever you want, but I'm not here to make friends. I work 
to make money. And I could go on for, you know, the rest of the podcast just reading examples. Uh, One person wrote, is this legal? My buddy works at a manufacturer and they've decided it's mandatory 55 hours of work. Even if you work 40 hours, then you have to use 15 hours of PTO to make up the gap. He wants to know if this is legal. So this is the kind of uh, information that's out here on this anti-work subreddit. And so, okay, it's interesting. Um, You could say that it maybe is a subset of culture. But like I said, you know, at the time of this recording, there are nearly 2 million followers of this particular subreddit. And so the question that I would like us to explore today is, so what? How does that translate into potential supply chain issues uh, and maybe business continuity or resilience concerns. Well, this past week, I spoke in Newport, Rhode Island at a conference. It was the seventh annual International Crisis Management Conference. And I was speaking about the new era of resilience and how business continuity is evolving. And one of the things I talked about is you know, intentionally going out and looking at future threats and looking at things that we needed to be aware of that could have an impact on the organization. And one of the things we were talking about was the great resignation and staffing and, you know, what kind of impact that might be having on various organizations. And so I asked for examples of the audience and one gentleman who works at a manufacturing uh, facility said that they're having a hard time hiring truck drivers. They don't have enough, uh, enough drivers to successfully move their product. And so as a result of this, what they've had to do is they have to now outsource this to trucking companies. And that's fine, they're able to move their product, but from a business perspective, it now costs more for them to deliver their product. And so I'm sure at some point, if they haven't already, they're probably going to start passing on those prices to their customers. And then that starts to become a little bit of a supply chain issue, not in terms of availability, but certainly in terms of cost. So if I am a customer of theirs, I'm now looking at higher costs for a couple of reasons, probably for one fuel costs, but also because they have to outsource the delivery of this to a third party. And as I looked around the room, I had saw a lot of people nodding with the guy who was telling us the story and two or three other people from different industries said, yeah, same thing here. We're having a hard time staffing certain jobs. And it's not necessarily the executives that they're having a hard time staffing. They're having a hard time staffing for lack of a better term, and I mean no offense by it, middle to lower paying jobs. And it was a very interesting conversation. But where it became even more real to me was on my trip back home. So I got a ride up to Boston, up to Logan Airport, and I had a couple of hours before my flight. And so I decided it would be a good idea maybe to get some dinner. It was about six o'clock and I was walking through the airport. And as I walked into the restaurant that I thought looked pretty good, I noticed that it was empty. And there was a woman there cleaning up. And I said, uh, can I get a table? And she said, no, we're closed. Oh, all right. Well, I thought that was kind of odd. So I turned around and looked and walked back down the 
the hallway there and came to the next restaurant. They're also closed, quarter after six. And I get to the third restaurant and I walk in and the guy says, sorry, boss, we're closing. And I said, okay, all right. And he was quite defensive about it too, by the way. But I said to him, well, well, what's the problem? I don't mean to be rude, but why is everybody closing? And he said to me, we just don't have the employees. We don't have the people. And he pointed to two other co-workers. He said, here, it's just the three of us. That's all we have. And we've been here all day. We're closing. And so I managed to find a kiosk that sold me a kind of a stale sandwich. And that was fine. That was that. And I went off to my gate and waited for my flight. And the flight was delayed a couple of times. And it had been delayed now about an hour and a half when a plane finally pulled up to our gate And we all got excited. We said, okay, great. Our plane is here. We're going to be able to leave. And they made the announcement, please don't get excited or confused. This is not your plane. They went on to explain that in our section of the airport, we were sitting in front of literally the only working operable gate in that section of the airport. And since it was after hours, and due to staffing issues, they didn't have a maintenance crew on board who could come and fix the other gates. So all flights for that night had to go through one working gate. Now that's a business continuity issue for that particular airline. As it turned out, and as happens so often, one little issue can exacerbate another problem and make something that really was not an issue, not a situation, turn it into a disruption. Probably about a half an hour later, our flight finally arrived, but it couldn't get to the gate because they never moved the plane from the gate, the only working gate. And so our plane, full of people, had to sit on the tarmac for probably 90 minutes, maybe two hours. And then they were finally able to find someone who was able to move the previous plane away from the gate. And then our plane was able to taxi up to the, uh, to the jetway. Now, the problem is by the time that happened and by the time they deboarded or deplaned everyone uh, off, our crew had reached their limit for how much flight time they could have in a given day. And so probably close to midnight, they canceled our flight. And so there you have a situation where you had a staffing situation delay something that was, it was late, but it wasn't terribly late and we would have been able to continue. But because we didn't have anybody who could fix the gate, we weren't able to get the plane to the gate on time and then due to their own work-related rules, they weren't able to continue on. So as a result of that, The airline then had to put up, oh, I don't know, 100, 150 people in hotels in Boston. And from the people that I was talking to, we're looking at, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, $300, $400 a night because uh, room availability was terrible. So if we're looking at, you know, 150 people, and let's just call it on average $350 a night, there's $52,000 of added expense, and I'm sure there was probably a lot more than that, just as a result of a staffing issue, not allowing them to continue their normal operation. 
I ended up finding a hotel room, took a taxi back to the airport the following morning. And I was talking to my cab driver, a guy named Mark also, Mark, Mark in Boston. And uh, we were talking about the anti-work sort of movement that's going on out there. And he said, yeah, okay, I want to work too. But the question is, what do you want me to do for minimum wage? And the idea is that it's, it's just not enough money to do the work that people are being asked to do. And that was his point of view. And he was uh, driving a taxi and I don't know how much he was getting paid by it and I didn't ask him and it's none of my business, but he was glad for the work. But he said that there are a lot of people out there and the reason that they don't want to work is there's just not enough pay to compensate them. So back at the airport now, uh, we're talking to people in line and our flight the next morning was also delayed also because of a crew availability issue, also related to not having enough staff. And so we got talking about anti-work there too. And I heard a lot of comments from people who are traveling on business. So we're trying to get things done. We're trying to be as productive as possible. And I'm hearing people say things like, well, it must be nice. I wonder what it's like to not have to work for a living. And so what we have here is this sort of disconnect on the views where the people who have this anti-work mentality are looking at it like, hey, all our work is doing is making the executives in the organization rich. We're certainly not seeing anything out of it. And the executives are looking at it like you should be grateful for your work. And then there are people like us who are trying to travel who are massively inconvenienced by people not working and therefore... Uh, services, whether it's airports or restaurants or airlines or whatever, uh, aren't able to fulfill their obligations because they don't have the people to do it. The other thing that I find interesting is I've had conversations with people lately who are trying to affect change. And that is one of the things that's in the anti-work movement as well, is that things that people my age or right around my age have taken for granted Things like a long commute, a 40-hour at least work week, uh, extra time when you're in what we always used to call salary-exempt status, meaning, yeah, you get paid, uh, you're not working an hourly uh, wage, but if something happens, you're expected to take care of it, you're in a leadership role. These are things that we just sort of all got used to and we just sort of accepted. Uh, But that is getting pushback now from the younger generation and from people who are looking at it and they're like, no, it's not acceptable. Five-day work weeks, 40-hour work weeks, and things like that. And so there are organizations that they might be union, they might not be union, but the workers are trying to coordinate with each other and put a stop to practices that they're saying are no longer acceptable. And so what they'll say is, listen, our organization doesn't plan very well. And as a result, there's a lot of emergency shifts that have to come up. We're going to ask everybody in the organization to not accept overtime or emergency overtime, that type of thing. And what tends to happen is you'll have one or two people who will say, they asked me to work. I'm working. I need the money. 
And so what happens is those one or two people who take every shift that's offered to them get called out by their colleagues, by their peers, and they get told, you're trying to make us look bad. Now, again, there's a disconnect. They might be trying, not necessarily trying to make the other people look bad. They're just trying to make some extra money. They have an opportunity to do it, so they want to do it. And so it really kind of comes down to what are you trying to accomplish here? Now, when I do things like this, I look at it this way. I'm an independent contractor. I either get paid by the project or I get paid by the hour, depending on my client. And if I don't work, if I'm not working for a client, I don't get paid. And I used to work for an organization back in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a long time ago, who basically tried to tell their clients, they didn't try to tell their clients, they told their clients, listen, for the most part, an employee between breaks and lunch and meeting people in the hallway and side conversations and all of these different things, their point of view was that the average employee was only going to work about five to five and a half hours a day. And their selling point was, bring our consultants in because they're not going to take breaks and they're going to work much closer to eight hours a day. And yeah, the rate might be a little bit higher, but you're not paying benefits and you don't have to worry about lost productivity. And that was the selling point. And so what we had to do was we had to live up to that. We had to work and not be seen taking very many breaks. And that was very early in my career and it became the norm for me. And so while other people were off laughing and taking smoke breaks or whatever it turned out to be, our team was working at our desk and we were heads down and we were getting things done. A question for you, and I'd like you to, you can reach out to me, you can leave comments uh, wherever you're listening to this. I want to know what you think about this. Is it okay to be the hardest working person on your team? How do you feel about that? Uh, you know, we're going to work hard. We're always always kind of taught as as young people to work hard and advance our career and do all of these things, but that seems to be missing from today. And so my question to you is, is it okay to be the hardest working person? But then the second part of that question is this, when is it too much? Do you need some, every once in a while, sometime to slow down? As an independent contractor, my biggest downfall is I don't know how to say no to a project. Now, some of that is because I like to work hard. And of course, we're always after, you know, it'd be nice to make more money and, and all of those things. But that's not really what drives me. What drives me is I'll get a call from somebody I know and they'll say, hey, I have a project here for you. And I usually come back with, well, okay, but I'm really busy right now. I can't, you know, I just, I don't see how I'm going to be able to fit that in. And then they tell me the project and it's like a shiny new toy. And I'm like, Ooh, that sounds fun. And the next thing you know, I go from four clients to six clients or eight clients. And it's like, Oh boy, how am I going to get all this done? And yes, okay. It's okay to be the hardest working person. But my question is, when is it too much? And when is it okay to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that? When, it is it, when is it okay to admit that to yourself? 
we talk a lot about mental health in the workplace and we talk a lot about work-life balance and I would like to know your views on that as to what is an appropriate work-life balance. I remember, again, early in my career before I really, really got into consulting, uh, I would get to the office early, 7, 7.30, because I had a long commute and I had young children and I wanted to leave the office by 4.30 so I could beat uh, the traffic and get home at a reasonable time. And I remember the sheer guilt that I felt walking out of the office at 4.30, even though I had been there nine and a half hours and took a very short lunch break, because I knew most of my colleagues, it was an IT environment, they were going to be there until 6 or 6.30 or whatever. What's too much? What's acceptable to you? I'd like to know uh, about that. So how does all of this apply to being resilient? I don't see this getting better anytime soon. We're going to be in a situation where there are suppliers that you rely on that are either going to be slower. We see a ton of supply chain delays right now. Some of that is due to materials, but I'm telling you a lot of that is due to the lack of staff uh, who are required in one job or another at your supplier and it's taking them longer to get stuff done. And if they get it done, it could be taking them longer to get it shipped to you. And so what I would encourage you to do if you're a business continuity professional would be two things at this point. The first one would be within your own organization, identify single points of failure where you have someone on your team and I don't mean within business continuity, but I mean organization-wide, identify all of those people who are the only ones who know how to do something and be a catalyst for change and see if you can generate some cross-training so that you can avoid a potential disruption, even if it's just a slowdown, for people who are the only ones who know how to do a specific function. And then the other thing is to work with your supply chain team and identify areas where they could be subject to the same thing, where they have disruptions or delays because key suppliers are taking too long to get product to them, product or services to them because of potential uh, working uh, or staff issues on their end. It is not getting any better it is an interesting thing. We think about the great resignation as people in high-paying executive jobs leaving and going from one company to another, and that's certainly true. But people in mid-level or even minimum wage jobs are also in this great resignation, anti-work movement, and it could have significant impact on your organization. I wanna thank the Resilience Think Tank for sponsoring The Resilient Journey. And I'd like to wrap up today with a special announcement. Last Thursday, it was announced that I was the winner of the Business Continuity Institute America's Award for the Continuity and Resilience Consultant for 2022, winning that uh, for the second year in a row. And I'm honored and proud and pleased to be part of the Institute, to be part of uh, the industry. And uh, I'd like to thank them for that award. We have more great content coming your way on this podcast. 
So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.